So yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic tonight. Um, Emily Carr, and before I get started, let's just pray. Lord God, thank you for your gift of art, um, for creativity, and uh, I pray that you would um, help us to be able to think about this artist, Emily Carr, um, and her, her understanding of nature and of you, and uh, be drawn into a deeper relationship with you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, I was, I lecture so often that I just try and think of topics that I can do sort of quickly. It didn't end up being that quick, but I was looking at my bookshelf and trying to see what books I had on my shelves and be like, what are you interested in? What can you talk about? So I saw uh, Emily Carr's um, childhood memoir and uh, my mom had sent it to me when I was living in India 10 years ago and it was wonderful to read at that time because she was talking about Victoria being developed and um, that was really fun when I was far away. So I thought, bingo, I already have one book, one book down. Um, and I've never lectured on, on anything local, anything Canadian before. Um, so I guess we, we have Canada Day, Day is bookended by two Canadian lectures, one on Jordan Peterson, one on Emily Carr. So that's perfect. <laughs> um, even if Clark is an American, I guess we can handle that. Keep going, just pretend nothing <laughs> Okay, nothing happened. Um, so... So how many of you here are familiar with Emily Carr? Just put your hands up. Okay, so most of us, most of the Canadians, <laughs> the Americans don't know anything about our culture. <laughs> um, so Emily Carr is someone that I've grown up with because I grew up in Victoria. Um, and I know my mom's favorite Emily Carr painting. I've had my favorite Emily Carr painting for a long time. Uh, and. I pass her statue downtown in front of the Empress Hotel, and her childhood home is nearby in James Bay. Um, I've seen her paintings in the Victoria Art Gallery, the Vancouver Art Gallery, and I've seen a lot of artists creating work in dialogue with her um, art as well, or just things that are inspired by her. So today, Emily Carr is widely known as Canada's most important female painter. She held a unique vision and an intense passion to portray scenes from the West Coast that she really loved. I want to take you through Emily Carr's life and I'll show you her paintings alongside some of her writing, little snippets, because she was a writer as well as a painter. And I'm especially going to focus on how she used her painting to explore her spirituality. She wrote that the only thing worth striving for in life is to express God. And her paintings were an attempt to do just that. She always tried to capture that nameless thing, as she called it, the spiritual truth behind what she saw. Here you can see a self-portrait that she painted later in her life. Uh, And she has a very intense look about her there, doesn't she? And I would really like for this lecture to be kind of a dialogue too, so so you're welcome to interrupt, ask questions, make comments if you want to, and I will try to ask you too what your impressions of these paintings are as we go along. You can kind of get a feel for her changing art and we can talk about it together. So let's go into her childhood, begin at the very beginning. So Emily Carr was born in Victoria in 1871. Maybe some of you have passed this house. Um, I took a picture of it on Wednesday when I went there, so that is the most current photo I could give you. Uh, It looks pretty much like that. So of her childhood self, Carr wrote, I was a happy-natured little girl, but with a tragic streak, very vulnerable to hurt. Her childhood memoir, The Book of Small, portrays her as inquisitive, particularly about the natural world, emotional, and often caught in various scrapes. On Sundays, her father would quiz she and her sisters about the sermon, which Carr frequently forgot. And actually, their mother attended Church of Our Lord, where some of us go to church today, the same old building. Um, Was it Anglican? It was Anglican, yes. It was like... They, they called it the, the big uh, Anglican church, the high Anglican church, kicking the little Anglican church down the hill once uh, the bishop left the high Anglican church because of a dispute and went down there. So that's why the cathedral's way up there. <laughs> We're down in the valley, the edge of James Bay at the time, where there was water right beside it. So uh, Carr was happy playing and singing loudly in the cow yard while her older sister Lizzie kept herself perfectly clean. She was the youngest of a group of sisters. Victoria, true to being named after the reigning British monarch at the time, held fast to its Englishness despite being on the very western edge of North America. 
seems like Emily Carr is the one who came up with the, the phrase we often hear around here that we're more British than the British. She says that in her book. Carr's father had settled on Victoria as the place where he could embrace both the vitality of the new world and remain faithful to his English heritage. Carr's parents, particularly her father, had a very different attitude toward nature than she did. She writes of her childhood home. Everything about it was extremely English. It was as though father had buried a tremendous homesickness in this new soil, and it had rooted and sprung up English. And you can see that if you go there today, there's these beautiful English gardens all around the house that they've preserved. Probably planted new plants, but <laughs> nonetheless. While Carr's father was bent on domesticating his land, Carr loved the wild places best, the untended corners of the fields, the neighboring Beacon Hill Park, and the wild lilies. She was also obsessed with animals and tells of a disappointing birthday when, after expecting a puppy, she was giving, given a painting of a girl and do a dog instead. <laughs> oh, I forgot. I need to uh, read a book. She relates a short story about Bishop Cridge, and I want to read it because it illustrates some important things about her relationship with God and nature, and I forgot to bring it downstairs, so... <laughs> Who's been to Carr's house? Now I can read this being a little out of breath. <laughs> it's a short, very short little story. It's called The Bishop and the Canary. This is Bishop Cridge, who is important to Victoria's history, who was at Church of Our Lord. Small is the name that Emily Carr gives herself in this book because she was the smallest of the sisters. <laughs> Still my beating heart. Small had earned the canary and loved him. How she did love him. When they had told her, you may take your pick, and she leaned over the cage and saw the four fluffy yellow balls, too young to have even sung their first song. Her breath and her heart acted so queerly that it seemed as if she must strangle. She chose the one with the top knot. He was the first live creature she had ever owned. Mine, I shall be his god, she whispered. <laughs> How could she time her dancing feet to careful stepping? She was glad the cage protected him sufficiently so that she could hug it without hurting him. Save for the flowers that poked their faces through the fences and for the sunshine, the long street was empty. She wished that there was someone to show him to, someone to say, he is lovely. A gate opened and the bishop stepped into the street. The bishop was very holy. Everybody said so. His eyes were blue, as if by his perpetual contemplation of heaven, they had taken its color. His gentle voice, vague and distant, came from up there too. His plump hands were transparent against the clerically black vest. Though she played ladies with his little girls, Small stood in great awe of the bishop. She had never voluntarily addressed him. When they were playing in his house, the children tiptoed past his study. God and the bishop were in there making new hymns and collects. <laughs> Her lovely bird, because there was no one else to show him to, she must show him to the bishop. Birds belonged to the sky. The bishop would understand. She was not at all afraid now. The bird gave her courage. She ran across the street. Look, bishop, look at my bird. The bishop's thoughts were too far away. He did not heed nor even hear the cry of joy. She stood before him with the cage held high. Bishop, oh, please, bishop, see. Dimly, the bishop became aware of some object obstructing his way. He laid a dimpled hand upon the little girl's head. Ah, oh, child, you are a pretty picture, he said, and moved her gently from his path. The bishop went his way. The child stood still. My beautiful bird! The look of hurt fury which she hurled at the bishop's back might have singed his clerical broadcloth. 
so you get a sense for her, uh, her sense of humor in this, as well as her observation when she describes the canary and the bishop both. Um, but also her, her, her anger over this rejection of the natural world by one who should understand its spiritual significance is a pattern that carried on throughout her life. Her fascination with nature was far more vital to her than what she experienced in church. She described her father's religion as grim and stern, and though she found gentleness in her mother's faith, something was still lacking. Next slide. So Card had some drawing lessons as a child after she showed an early aptitude. Her parents both died in her teenage years, and she felt stifled by her older sister's overbearing ways. So she convinced her family guardian to allow her to go to San Francisco for art training. Here she is around that period. And you can see uh, from this painting, there wasn't anything particularly remarkable about it. That's when she did during that period. It's, it's technically good, but nothing that really uh, shows that she would be something really unusual. After three years, the family ran out of funds and she had to return to Victoria. So she saved money by teaching her own art classes until she could afford to study art in London. She was very motivated. But in London, the big city didn't agree with her and she found her classes uninspiring. After a brief sojourn at an artist colony in Cornwall, her health worsened and she began to suffer from acute anemia. In 1903, Carr was sent to a sanatorium that was mostly for TB patients. Fellow patients speculated on the cause of her confinement, deciding it couldn't be mental because her tongue was sharp enough to mow the lawn. <laughs> she spent a year and a half in the sanatorium. She wasn't allowed to paint, but she kept sketches and wrote poems to amuse <coughs> the nurses and other patients. They're now collected in a book called Pause. She said, serious work had, to be put, had been put out of my life, but I used to make caricatures and silly rhymes about the patients and the staff at which they used to laugh immoderately. Because of those laughs, they forgave a lot of my shortcomings. Despite harsh conditions and strict treatments, she found refuge once again in the natural world, taking walks when she was well enough and falling asleep by a rabbit warren in the woods. She raised local songbirds by hand with the intention of bringing them back to her silent Canadian woods. Many of the patients found joy in helping her with this project. But when Carr's health worsened, and there weren't enough of the familiar patients to help her care for the birds, she chloroformed them to keep them from dying a slow death in the unfamiliar wild. She returned home with a sense of artistic failure, but with deep gladness at being back in the land she'd missed. For a while, she taught art to women in Vancouver, but she was frustrated by her students' lack of focus, and they in turn found her rude. <laughs> she had more success with teaching children instead. So, what do you notice about this painting? <coughs> Seems almost impression, um, impressionistic. Hmm. <coughs> Lots of movement. She's already got that kind of. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, so you see the curve there. Distinct colors. Mm -hmm. Bright. Mm -hmm. <coughs> it's very, yeah, a very different palette, I would think. Right. Fairly Definitely. Other mm -hmm. stuff. What sort of date are we talking about? 1911. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they all have their dates. If I could find the dates, they have them. So, yeah, great observations. <laughs> In 1910, Emily Carr traveled to France to discover for herself the new art she'd been hearing about. Here she was influenced by the post-impressionists and the Fauves, whose name means wild beasts. And that's, that name came from their use of color mostly. They emphasized the importance of using colors to represent not the literal reality, but the artist's vision or feeling for the place. And Carr's colors became bright and warm, as you see here, inspired by the French countryside, and her pa painting became more interpretive. So this is from another sketchbook that Carr kept. In 1907, she traveled with her sister Alice to Alaska. And her sketch journal during this trip documents, through humorous cartoons, the sisters' adventures, including hiking in the rain, encountering a bear that ended up wearing some of their clothes, and dealing with seasickness by drinking brandy. <laughs> her encounters with First Nations culture there sparked the idea of a new project, 
to document the First Nations villages that seem to be quickly disappearing from the coast. This is the first, her first known depiction of a totem pole. You see it might not be completely to scale. <laughs> the magnificent totem poles were no longer erected. Those poles that remained had fallen into disrepair. New houses were being built and the communal houses abandoned. Colonial people of that time believed that the First Nations were dying out. Carr spent the next five years on summer sketching trips to various remote villages along the coast and the islands. Beyond her admiration for the highly skilled First Nations art, Carr felt a resonance with First Nations spirituality. Their reverence for the natural world seemed akin to hers and something she had missed in her childhood Christianity. The totems and other sculptures conveyed strong spiritual ideas that deeply impressed her, both as an artist and as a person working out her own beliefs. In her memoir, Cleewick, Carr describes her imagination of a First Nations artist making a totem pole. He wanted some way of showing people things that were in his mind, things about the creatures and about himself and their relation to each other. He cut forms to fit the thoughts that the birds and animals and fish suggested to him. And to these, he added something of himself. When they were all linked together, they made very strong talk for the people. He grafted this new language onto the great cedar trunks and called them totem poles and stuck them up in the villages with great ceremony. Then the, ce then the cedar and the creatures and the man all talked together through the totem poles to the people. The carver did even more. He let his imaginings rise above the objects that he saw and pictured supernatural beings too. This description seems to embody much of what Carr hoped for in her own work, but to her these paintings of First Nations villages were mostly a documentary attempt rather than self-expression. What do you guys notice in this painting? She's using a lot of colors there that she doesn't use in her later work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a little similar to the France one, isn't it, in terms of the, the lighter, right. brighter kind of colors? Mm -hmm. The totem poles are stretching to the sky while everything else seems like stagnant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a big sky. She almost seems taken with um, uh, the derelict shape of the houses where mm -hmm. she grew up British and mm. everything else seemed... Yeah, <coughs> she, pr she really has a sense for the kind of desolation. It's kind of interesting that the, the poles closest to the viewer are quite detailed, uh, mm -hmm. but not very far away. There's no detail at all. Mm -hmm. so it's like it's as, you, as, as they come closer, they become more into focus or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can see a bit of the sort of uh, post-impressionistic feeling there too. But it's not completely literal. So Carr had an ambivalent relationship with the missionaries to these villages. Some of them she stayed with, um, but she encountered many. She often portrayed them as dour and unappreciative of indigenous ways. She said they had served up religion to the Indians like a large dose of castor oil. <laughs> she wrote, the missionaries came and took the Indians away from their old villages and the totem poles and put them into new places where life was easier, where they bought things from a store instead of taking them from nature. So again, organized Christianity was that which cut people off from their vital connection with nature. Though Carr had been painting for a long time, she hadn't been able to find a style that truly suited her feeling for the West Coast. Her paintings of First Nation villages seemed to be not quite her own. She tried to sell these paintings to the province's new museum, but was rejected because they weren't factual enough. So you can see it wasn't totally documentary when she was painting. She had a bit too much of herself in them. Her work was considered too modern for popular taste. Carr became quite discouraged by these setbacks and entered a period where she mostly abandoned painting. This is uh, called the House of All Sorts. It's on Simcoe Street, downtown James Bay. She opened a boarding house, and this is near her childhood home in Victoria, just around the corner. There she also raised sheep dogs, chickens, and rabbits. She created and sold pottery and hooked rugs that incorporated First Nations motifs, but she always felt a bit uncomfortable with what seemed to her somewhat exploitive. She was considered an eccentric by most local people and had few friends. During this period, Carr became interested in the American transcendentalist writers, Thoreau, Emerson, and particularly Walt Whitman. Their mystical approach to nature resonated with her. In 1927, 
Eric Brown, the director of the National Gallery of Canada, showed up at Carr's front door. By this time, Carr was in her 50s and had mostly left off painting for about 15 years. Hmm. It was a great surprise when Brown asked her to join an Ottawa exhibition of art that portrayed the West Coast. This included members of the Group of Seven, an all-male painter collective out of Eastern Canada. Isolated as she was from the rest of Canada, both socially and geographically, Carr had never heard of these men who were seeking to create a new national art. When she saw their work, awe shook her. In her journal, she wrote, Oh God, what have I seen? Where have I been? Something has spoken to the very soul of me. Wonderful, mighty, not of this world. I think perhaps I shall find God here. The God I've longed and hunted for and failed to find. So this is the poster that Carr designed for the exhibition. After the exhibit, which to Carr's disappointment was poorly attended, she traveled to Ontario to meet the group of seven and to see their studios. She was excited and nervous to talk with them. She hoped to do something in painting for the West like they were doing for the East, but would they think that her painting was worthy of their attention? Could they feel the same resonance with her work that she felt with theirs? Carr was particularly struck by Lauren Harris's paintings, who's familiar with his work. Yeah, he is very famous. <laughs> She said, Lauren Harris's work is still in my mind. Always something in it speaks to me, something in his big, tranquil spaces filled with light and serenity. I feel as though I could get right into them, the spirit of me, not the body. There is a holiness about them, something you can't describe, but just feel. In turn, he encouraged her by telling her, you are one of us. Carr finally felt a connection with other artists who wanted to paint Canada's wildness and express the spirituality of nature. The Group of Seven was highly influenced by theosophy. <laughs> I've had to look at this article on Wikipedia a lot of times to try and understand what it is. Um, th at the time, it was a popular philosophical movement started by the Russian mystic Helena Blavatsky. It was an esoteric occult movement emphasizing transcendence through nature and artists were held in high regard as those who could pierce the material veil and move the viewer through to the divine. In Ontario, Harris had long conversations with Carr about theosophical ideas. Her initial reaction to theosophy wasn't altogether positive. This is what she wrote in her journal. Lauren and I discussed theosophy. They are all theosophists, that is the group of seven. I know there is something in this teaching for me, something in their attitude towards God, something that opens up a way for the artist to find himself and approach. We discussed prayer and Christ and God. I didn't sleep well, and it woke at five o'clock the next morning with a black awfulness upon me. It seemed as if they had torn at the roots of my being, as if they were trying to rob me of everything. No God, no Christ, no prayer. How can I ever bear it? I ached with the awfulness of everything and cried out bitterly. I had thought I might get some light, but I was stiff with horror. I was soul sick. A subsequent conversation with Harris settled her feelings for the time being. She concluded that theosophists do not banish God, but make him bigger. They do not seek him as an outsider, but within their very selves. Prayer is communion with that divinity. They escape into a bigger realm and lose themselves in the divine whole. To make God personal is to make him little, finite, not infinite. I want the big God. The group of seven's fixation with searching for the divine in nature echoed her own efforts. But unlike her, the group rarely included cultural artifacts such as the totem poles she loved. They focused on landscapes stripped of human markers. Still, Carr believed Harris had reached something divine in his paintings, which she herself longed to do. She became very influenced by his thinking and tried to incorporate theosophical principles of color and shape into her work. After Carr's meeting with the group of seven, she immediately entered a new period of productivity. She felt a kinship with the group and that seemed to take the edge off of her isolation. On her return to the West Coast, Carr took more trips to remote villages. Carr had started out by painting First Nations villages in a more realistic style trying to document them before the forest swallowed them. But now she was attempting to capture their essence rather than their literal form. 
During her travels to First Nations villages, Carr made this painting, Kamshawa, named after the village where this raven sculpture was. It had been one of a pair of sculptures flanking the door of a house where many First Nations people had died of smallpox. Their, corpse, their corpses vanished in the undergrowth. In the first painting, this one, the colors are lighter and brighter, flowers growing around the base of the raven. You can see some of that French influence there. Though there's a sense of isolation, it is more one of wistful loneliness than of heavy solitude. Carr wrote, I want to bring great loneliness to this canvas and a haunting broodiness, quiet and powerful. This is one of Carr's most famous works. So it's a reworking of Kamshua, and it shows the influence of Harris and his theosophical ideas. The composition is mostly the same. You've got the mountain in the back there, the greenery underneath, and the raven sculpture there. But now the contrast is heightened and the forms are heavy and sculptural, much like Harris's mountains, the bare trees, and the stark icebergs. Unnecessary details are stripped away. The raven appears to be carved of stone, a powerful figure riding a swirling sea of greenery. White beams of light, which were so important in Harris's paintings, emanate from the rain clouds above, providing a backdrop for the raven that seems to denote its spiritual significance. The heavy, solid shapes and intense colors create a very different feel from the earlier painting. We get the sense that Carr is trying to look beyond what's actually there and portray what it represents, a spiritual force still present despite the disappearance of the surrounding village. What do you guys notice in this painting? The church is just diminished by this growth. Mm. Yeah, very tall trees. <laughs> the whole thing looks like a tombstone grave marker. Hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like it belongs. It looks so other. The church. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, quite a contrast. So this painting was uh, Lauren Harris's favorite of Carr's work, and he actually bought it from her to display in his home. The title is Indian Church. It was actually changed to much controversy to Church at Yokot Village. Um, so that was by the Ontario um, Art Gallery that did that. And in this painting, the trees are no longer a background like they were in, in her earlier works um, to the architectural elements, but they are figures in their own right. You can see they have a lot of life of their own and they are towering over the bright white church. So after, this is not Emily Carr, <laughs> after Carr exhibited her work at the Artists of the Pacific Northwest show in Seattle, the painter Mark Toby encouraged Carr to experiment with cubism. This is one of his works, and take a more abstract approach. Um, can you go to the next one? So in this painting here, you can see the cubist colors and influence. They attempt to portray something beneath the surface rather than the literal form. Um, often cubist works use a lot of those kind of gray tones, <laughs> the, cold, the cold sort of tones, and there's kind of that fractured sky behind the eagle there, jagged shapes. Carr also applied Toby's techniques to a series of charcoal drawings that brought the forest trees out of the background. You can see there's a combination of sort of totem details as well as trees in this drawing. The trees gained a sculptural form with the same weight as the totem poles that they're surrounding. But Carr was reluctant to move into true abstraction. The forest continued to exert a strong pull on her, the deep love of nature she'd had since childhood. She wrote, I was not ready for abstraction. I clung to earth and her dear shapes, her density, her herbage, her juice. I wanted her volume and I wanted to hear her throb. What do you notice in this painting here? Looks like a face. <laughs> <laughs> like an eye, kind of. Mm -hmm. yeah. Despair. Hmm. It's not sort of the typical forest colors that one would expect, is it? The title kind of says <laughs> says something to it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's almost looks like a shroud, you know. Mm -hmm. Trees. Mm -hmm. So, 
Carr began to tr transition away from First Nations themes and focus on painting the forest itself. She said, it was Lauren Harris who first suggested I make this change. I'd become more deeply interested in woods than in villages. In them, I was finding something that was peculiarly my own. While working on the Indian stuff, I felt a little that I was but copying the Indian idiom instead of expressing my own feelings. So many people have looked at this painting and seen a sort of eye in the, in the painting, as you pointed out, and uh, this sort of um, watchfulness of the forest, and the forest is starting to gain this life of its own. Um, that is very powerful and a little unsettling. So at first, Carr used the same solid technique she'd used for totem poles, creating forests that are dark and foreboding. But she found that this didn't fit with what she was trying to express. You can see these really kind of sculptural forms again, like these heavy drapery of the trees, clearly delineated. At the same time, she felt a growing dissatisfaction with her spiritual beliefs. I'm always asking myself the question, what is it you are struggling for? What is the vital things the woods contain, possess, that you want? Why do you go back and back to the woods unsatisfied, longing to express something that is there and not able to find it? This I know, I shall not find it until it comes out of my inner self, until the God quality in me is in tune with the God in it. Only by right living and a right attitude towards my fellow man, only by intense striving to get in touch, in tune with the infinite, shall I find that deep thing hidden there. And that will not be until my vision is clear enough to see, until I have learned and the fully realized my relationship to the infinite. So you can see in this quote that her spirituality included a great amount of wrestling, striving, an attempt to achieve transcendence through her art. She could never really rest. Actually, go back. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Though Carr had spent three years delving into theosophical concepts, the ideas continued to unsettle her. She had kept up a steady correspondence with Harris, who remained devoted to theosophy. Carr resonated with the idea of looking for God's presence in nature. But unlike Harris, who emphasized a cold intellectual serenity in his paintings, Carr loved movement and growth. Harris eventually moved into pure abstraction to try and express his inner spiritual ideas. I've seen his exhibit in Vancouver and he, he started eventually just kind of painting it like this with his eyes closed and uh, felt like that was a truer expression of what he was channeling through him or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, so abandoning the, the natural world really. But Carr remained connected to portraying the natural world. She was convinced it couldn't simply be abandoned. Representational beauty wasn't a distraction, but rather something that, like the stained glass windows in a church, could bring us near to God if we were willing. That's how she described it. In 1933, Carr attended a lecture by Raja Singh, who called himself a Hindu Christian. She was struck by his ideas and presence. She said, everything in Raja Singh centers on Christ, being consecrated to Christ opening oneself to become a channel to be used by Christ. He has a childlike, simple faith. No sect, no creed, no bonds, but just God and Christ. This emphasis on Jesus struck a chord in Carr. Theosophy had asked her to abandon a personal God, but she had never been easy with that. After inviting Singh to her home for a conversation, she made a decision to return to her Christian roots of 60 years ago. She wrote, I have decided to take my stand on Christ's side, to let go of philosophers and substitute Christ. Carr was worried that her abandonment of theosophy would mean the loss of her friendship with a group of seven. She was surprised and happy that Harris expressed support of her decision to return to Christianity. She remained in touch with Harris for the rest of her life, but when he divorced his wife and married the wife of a mutual friend of his and Carr's, she felt even more distance from the group of Eastern painters. She had learned to see things for herself rather than asking herself what Lauren Harris would think. Around this time, Carr developed a new, faster way to paint by mixing oil paint with gasoline and applying it to paper. Unfortunately, it wasn't the most durable of materials, <laughs> but it was cheap and she needed that because she never had a lot of money. And this technique also allowed her to work quickly and to capture the movement that was so important to her in nature. 
Her later work has less of a brooding, ponderous feel. It's more open and light. You can see that here. There's still mystery, but nature seems less frightening. The transition of her painting style seems to reflect her internal changes as well. She wrote, when I tried to see things theosophically, I was looking through the glasses of cold, hard, inevitable fate. Serene, perhaps, but cold, unjoyous, and unmoving. Seeing things the Christ way, things are dipped in love. It warms and humanizes them. I am come that ye might have life and have it more abundantly. God as cold, inexorable law is terrible. God as love is joyous. What do you guys notice in this painting? Movement. Hmm. Reminds me how I feel looking at Canada as an American. <laughs> 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 it's closer to reality than her, her former paintings. Well, from her adult former paintings. Mm -hmm. Like some of the, the forest ones that are more kind of the sculptural forms. Yeah. There's so much more warmth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't see a lot of the sky in her earlier paintings. Mm -hmm. It's mostly the, just looking into the forest interior, which is very dark and kind of brooding. So that's quite a shift for her. Seems like the quote that you just read uh, really embodies the difference between the others in this one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This one's more of joy, movement. The other one's unmoving, cold, geometrical. Mm -hmm. Right. She said she felt a, a real sense of peace and joy after making the decision to return back to Jesus. And um, there seems like to be a subtleness in many of her paintings have um, titles that relate to joy around this time. Those last two sentences are almost kind of fridge magnet <laughs> bumper stickers. <laughs> they really wants to ponder, though, aren't they? Yeah. It's interesting to see what kind of. Um, God that the group of seven was trying to create or to portray through their art um, something kind of stripped of, of humanity in their, their landscapes that didn't have human figures in it um, and and Carr trying to portray something that was more personal. And it seems like Lauren Harris, because you've spoken about him went the opposite way mm -hmm. his early paintings are so beautiful and open, mm -hmm. you almost feel like a fresh breath air, his later ones are so geometrical, mm -hmm. tight mm -hmm. almost inhuman Right. Yeah, I think there was an increasing removal from sort of everyday people and um, scenes like that. Yeah. It's interesting too that her father was like that remote and mm -hmm. cold, <coughs> that she would be attracted to that initially. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Oh, so maybe he's a father. <laughs> well, maybe he was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was very influential, even though he's quite a bit younger than her. He really had a strong influence on her ways of painting and of seeing. <coughs> so, can we go to the next? One. Scorned as timber, beloved of the sky. This is my personal favorite of Carr's painting, so I had to get it in there. It's at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and when I visited, I just sat and stared at it sometimes. <laughs> um, big is it? It's about that big, I guess. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> uh, in her late artistic period, Carr began to be more interested in painting logged landscapes, partly to draw attention to the destruction of the forests. Yet despite the stump she calls screamers, <laughs> quite the name, in many of these paintings there's a bright joyful quality. I often think of her when I'm driving up island and see these log landscapes. It really reminds me of paintings like this. I remember, I, I think I remember reading about her term screamers. I was trying to, trying to capture this idea of the tree, the la that last little bit of yeah. the tree that doesn't get cut through and just rips as the tree right. falls over. Right, right, yeah, a little <laughs> bit sticking up. Yeah. Kind of terrifying. <laughs> she had a real connection with trees. Yeah. Um, so, so what strikes you in this painting? I think it's there's also a huge amount of sky in this one. That's mm -hmm. It's just soft. Th that light is similar to the the ones influenced by Harris, but just softer and. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
Yeah, that tree seems kind of uh, impossibly tall, isn't it? Oh, it's going to fall over. Title, though. Yeah. 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 I think it's got like a little bit of a crossbar on it. Yeah. Very, very observant, Mom. <laughs> so some critics have actually seen this lone tree as representing Christ on the cross, partly because of that little smudge that you get right there in the middle. Um, and the title is sort of indicative of that as well, Scorned by Humans but Beloved by God. I don't know if this is true, but the title also makes me think about Carr herself. She was always an outsider, and as a young child she never felt she fit in with her prim and tidy sisters. As an adult, she was seen as an eccentric who preferred animal company to humans. People laughed at her pushing her monkey, birds, and dogs around the city in a baby carriage. Her own sisters never really appreciated her art. Carr had experienced much loneliness, and she found few who understood her. But those who did touched her deeply. She spoke of having a garden of remembrance where she planted the few kindred spirits she'd found. After abandoning theosophy for good, Carr occasionally attended church, but she never really felt that she fit in with organized Christianity. She wrote, To churchgoers, I am an outsider, but I am religious, and I always have been. She recalled attending Christ Church Cathedral downtown and observing the pews of gloomy-looking congregants. She wrote, I can't think that holiness means unhappiness. Seems to me real holiness should mean lasting happiness. That's the kind I want to get hold of. That's the kind of holiness I want to come into my painting to. Praise, every bit of nature praising God. Though her exact conception of God's relationship with nature is still unclear, at least to me, Carr's language after abandoning theosophy seems to focus more on nature praising God rather than its being God. In Carr's later paintings, her loose brushwork and lighter opening skies seems to signify a new kind of joy. She began to paint the ocean as well, with wide swirling skies above. The painting here is appropriately titled Happiness. You can see there's a lot of warmth here. <laughs> These colors are not really ones that we've seen from her before. The, the yellows and the bright light greens. It's almost sort of a, a halo around that tree. Here she is later in her life. She's just so dresses out of Hudson Bay blankets. She just wanted practical clothes and wore a hairnet. She did not care about fashion. <laughs> so Carr suffered a series of heart attacks that forced her to live with her sister Alice. Her poor health prevented her from being able to paint, so she turned to writing instead. She wrote four books documenting her memories of growing up in Victoria and her travels into First Nations villages. She became good friends with Ira Dilworth, who was um, in charge of the CBC at that time. And when he read Carr's stories over the radio, they were an immediate hit. Her book, Cleewick, a series of vignettes of encounters with First Nations people, won the <coughs> Governor General's Award, the most prestigious award in Canada. Carr, who had never read much and had dropped out of school, had achieved recognition in her writing that eluded her in her paintings. Near her death in 1945, Carr wrote, some can be active to a great age, but enjoy little. I have lived. Throughout her life, Emily Carr tried to work out her artistic practice and what it meant to relate to God through the material world, particularly through nature. At times, she sounds almost Gnostic as she speaks of transcending the physical, while other times she reveres the material world almost as if it were God. But she always held to the importance of honesty in painting and the belief that art could be an avenue for us to find truth. Emily Carr created a style that reaches into so much of West Coast painting today. She looked deep into the heart of the forest. Though geographically isolated from most of the artistic world, she realized a unique vision of the West Coast. Her paintings are so well known that those who spend enough time here often start, start to see her trees emerge from the real landscapes around them. Her desire to portray the beauty of God as seen in nature still calls to those who see her blue skies and dancing trees. There's one of her ocean uh, escapes. You can see the beauty of that open sky, and that's Clover Point that many of you are familiar with near downtown. So that's what I have for you, and I would love to have some discussion and your thoughts on Emily Carr and her work in life. Just a clarification. She was not a part of the group of seven? 
She was not. They, she was kind of honorary, I guess you might say. She was but kind of like a Dorothy Sayers relation to the English. Right. She wasn't yeah. English, but she was always mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She wasn't geographically located like close enough to them to really kind of have that sort of bond, but um, at least at the, that first time they kind of saw her as part of what they were trying to do in at creating a national art for Canada. So she was sort of like, that. she said, like the, the one spoke kind of out west that, that on the wheel <laughs> that was turning. But so mm. she felt definitely a kinship with their attempt to portray something that was uniquely Canadian. And they were also very influenced by the transcendentalists, the, the group of seven. She was in Paris. Did she have contact with any of the uh, people like Picasso or other artists at the time? That were it doesn't seem like she documented those things specifically, but she does talk about some artists like later in her journals and things like that. She talks about Van Gogh, and she was often also compared to him. Okay. Um, and you can see a bit of that, <laughs> both in kind of her craziness and in her, her, her work. Um, but she thought that was kind of ridiculous. She's like, I'm not Van Gogh. <laughs> um, she, she had a very ambivalent relationship with critics, and I think she probably, she'd had so many hard knocks, she kind of knew it like it comes and goes, you know, so it kind of kept her grounded, although she did want recognition. Is any of her stuff in the, in the BC, in the Royal, Royal BC Museum? Museum? Yeah, I, I thought I saw that, I'd read that online, but I can't picture where it would be. Because I, yeah, I don't know. They don't have a lot of artwork in there. No, no. not really. The but the art gallery has lots. Yeah, the art gallery does, yeah. 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 yeah, both there and the Vancouver Art Gallery have lots. So, yeah, and I know the Vancouver Art Gallery often is, has been, at least for a while, running a series of um, with artists doing works inspired by her with varying levels of <laughs> greatness. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been any criticism of um, some of her native work, uh, cultural appropriation? Is of course. <laughs> of course. That's her best, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, yeah, she's come under some criticism for that. And um, part of, part of the, the issue is that she sort of considered this like a dying culture. Um, and, and so some people find that offensive, that she would think it's a culture that's dying out when there's still, you know, now today it's very much alive and well. Um, but those vi villages were literally decaying and the populations had really been ravaged by disease. So that is what people thought at the time, that these were cultures that were going to die out. And um, she didn't know. <laughs> like she didn't know what, they didn't know what would happen. So, um, Was her work in an effort to preserve the yeah, culture? Yeah. To, and yeah, both for the First Nations people and for others um, to see what, what had been um, achieved because the, like no one was carving totem poles anymore at that time. Um, they were, and they were also being cut down by museums and taken, so... Um, now, didn't she live on Hadaguay? She didn't live on Hadaguay. She made um, expeditions there. Yeah, oh, but okay. she, would, she would just take these really risky canoe trips or boat trips to these places and just, like, get plopped down in the forest by herself for, like, up to a week with her, like, provisions and just all these mosquitoes and <laughs> sit and paint in the rain. <laughs> she was a very intrepid person. Yeah. So was she received by the First Nations? Yeah, so so actually Cleewick is a, um, a name that they gave to her, which means laughing one. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, in different different ways. <laughs> At times she was received and times not, but um, she really did have a high respect for, for their culture. And um, so, yeah, there were th she told this one story in, in Cleewick about um, going to this village and, and the, the guy who took her there said okay you can sleep on my father's porch <laughs> like she had this little tent flap kind of thing and then um <laughs> her little dog chased away all of the first nations dogs and so so they were so happy that, about this that they let her sleep in in the house and she kind of slowly migrated into <laughs> into the community but um yeah and, and then she ended up sending some some of her sketches to the the one woman there um, who really liked them but yeah it's a, i mean one of the quotes you had there sounded like she was kind of aware of this issue herself, that mm -hmm. she was, right. you know, because she talks about shifting away from mm -hmm. kind of borrowing the, right. the native yeah. work in her work. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, I think that was for two reasons. Yeah, I'd, I'd say like, well, well with, the, with the pottery and the, um, the rags and stuff like that, mm -hmm. she she was selling those things, so she felt that that was kind of exploitation in a way, because she, it wasn't you know, her culture or whatever, but, so she, she always felt uncomfortable with that. I'd say with the, with the First Nations paintings, um, that, 
for her that wasn't really it wasn't expressing her own experience of the forest as much um so i don't know if she ever you know really regretted that or whatever because there wasn't anyone else who was well there were people who were doing that but um she yeah she was really trying to <laughs> embark on this kind of documenting of these villages that were disappearing so she really felt like she was doing um, something good <laughs> and did you earn much from, from her paintings in her own lifetime did she earn much yeah. um <laughs> from her paintings some, but not a lot. Not a lot. No, now she is, you know, painting. Was that when she died? Yeah, it kind of got spread around. Um, yeah, she like she'd sold some to different people, but I think um, Ira Dilworth, the, the CBC guy, too, ended up with um, some things. And uh, her sister, I think her sister Alice, is probably the executor because she was still alive at the time. So yeah, she had a lot of her stuff. Probably didn't appreciate it fully. But, um, yeah, a lot of these, like this is one of the ones that was painted on paper, and you can kind of see the paper was probably white originally, and now it's kind of got this yellow coming through, so not everything has survived um, that well with time. But yeah, there was a, um, there was maybe it was in the House of All Sorts, I'm not sure, but there was a painting discovered, I don't know if anyone else remembers this, like on the inside ceiling of this house that no one knew was there, and this was recently, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, five years ago like that. yeah so, so so you never know what you might uncover yeah. at the flea market <laughs> you're like a rolled up piece of paper and normally <laughs> carved but of course now her paintings sell for millions of dollars so. Do you think? yeah there's one sold three point something recently so mm -hmm. yeah I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about what you were saying about this circle that her coming back to this um, realization of the importance of Christ mm -hmm. and how that influenced her painting and yet um, like we've gone to the to the art gallery and there's nothing publicly yeah. said about that like so how like how in, like in your research mm -hmm. on this like how how much is written about this and and the influence in her work and the connection between the two yeah, yeah and how important it was to her yeah, I mean, I, I read her journal, so, uh, which was mostly kept, like, just before she met the group of seven and all that whole period, yeah. so it really documented that sort of, like, movement from theosophy and then out of it back yeah. kind of and towards some form of Christianity, um, and she she started this kind of technique, like, a little before she she made this this major shift, but, um, but and I, I wouldn't say, like, anyone specific, nothing, no one I read, like, explicitly said, like Jesus equals this kind yeah. of you know but there but yeah people have talked about this link because she became more happy more settled as a person and that's reflected in these kind of open skies like brighter colors um looser brushwork and stuff and it was partly due to the technique I think but I do think that um other people have commented on that as well that it was yeah this time so and I see a pretty strong correlation I think um that even that she moved to the ocean, not that there's anything wrong with the forest, and I think her forest paintings are beautiful, but um, she just seemed to have more of a, just more light in general in her, her paintings, yeah. Wasn't, she, there was a, like almost fearfulness of nature, and she, she, even the way she thought about the totem poles is that there were these kind of sentinels like keeping back the wildness of the forest, and um, though she loved the forest, there was kind of a fearfulness of it that you don't see so much in her, her later work. So, I'm yeah. curious because it sounds like <coughs> her. I mean, you talk about her beliefs really shaping what her artwork mm -hmm. looks like. Do you think that her, you can look at kind of from the reverse and look at her art shaping her beliefs mm -hmm. as well? In that, you know, like did sticking with painting forest mm -hmm. landscapes or the earth. Um, you know, moved into like very abstract, like he moved away from nature. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that kind of helped to ground her and helped her to understand her? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's so that's partly like her, like where she was anchored as a person geographically, too. I think, yeah. um, in some ways, like, yeah, I've, I've spent some time thinking about how the Western landscape influenced her in particular, you know. Yeah. Um, which is like it's always very present like I think all of us feel that you know there's mountains ocean sky like it's big it's big right um, but ever well, during since your lecture there was a deer a bunny and <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> hard to ignore <laughs> thank you I paid, the, I paid them for that <laughs> yeah. but 
Yeah, so I think I think that, that that was maybe part of it. But I, ever since she was a child, she just had such a strong sense of of nature just being this amazing thing. You know, flowers that just like she was so excited about this one <laughs> lily, or when she was in the sanatorium, someone brought her an orchid, and she had this whole description about it. And so she always had this strong connection to the natural world. But I do think uh, she, yeah, I, I think she kind of went back and forth in how she thought about it. But I would say that. Um, she had a real value of it for itself as well as for a point like a pointer to God like it wasn't it wasn't just like utilitarian like something to kind of get past mm-hmm. I mean I'd say that Lauren Harris had more of that feeling I don't know about the other group of seven uh, members but that that it was there to kind of be tra- it was a vehicle to trans to move you somewhere else but it didn't really have that much value kind of in and of itself um I don't know if that's 100% right, but that's the sense that I get. But I think that she always had a sense that it was valuable in and of itself, you know. And she also had animals, like a lot of animals. And so I think that probably kept her connected. She didn't have a lot of um, human friends, close human friends. So, yeah, I think she... That's not That's not maybe quite what you were asking. I don't know if that is an answer. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very tragic that um, in order to... There seems to be two things... Um, one is her impulse toward nature could not be fulfilled within uh, the church, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at the time, and I don't, I don't think that that's still very much an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and also her artistic vision, you know, like, you know, there's Christianity doesn't have a great record on both both those. Things. Well, of course, that's a very broad statement. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are areas where it does, but you know, certainly within the broader evangelical tradition. That way, I think is the case. You know, it's difficult as an artist or mm-hmm. or a person a, a person who really loves creation mm-hmm. to f- find fulfillment in you know because there tends to be a very otherworldly um, focus and you know we're all going to heaven anyway so you know mm-hmm. you know that kind of attitude right. anyway it just seems very sad to me that um, right. she had to that's that that's what caused that whole journey toward uh, the. Philosophicalism and, and, right. and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I hope it's getting better. But <laughs> yeah, I, I think know. it's it's been a good reminder, definitely for me. Mm-hmm. Seeing this stuff is just to to be aware of what's around me, and um, yeah, to be grateful for <laughs> for that. And living in a place like this too, just for the beauty that God's created <laughs> this this landscape. And um, mm-hmm. I think I think also, yeah, just the kind of sternness that she portrays of of like church Mm. um and you know like just you know not being allowed to to move and make any noise and Mm. um her that was probably probably from her father too because i don't think she totally had that experience with her mom and she has she talks about the bishop in other other times where like she said he gave amazing blessings everyone went just to get his blessing so it's not all negative i don't think it's there was something that lasted for her but i think and I wonder if some of it was sort of the, the English kind of thing too. Like it was, it didn't really fit in with this land that like she wanted something that spoke to here. Um, and it seemed like a lot of it was about preserving England, kind of Englishness, you know, and, uh, and, and the way that First Nations people were treated also bothered her too. Um, and it, people didn't really have much value for them. And she, she became good friends with some of them, so. Yeah, there's probably a lot, a lot there, but she's yeah very unconventional and <laughs> didn't really fit into polite Victorian society. I found it really interesting to sort of think about Victoria today and how it how it relates to how she experienced it because I think sometimes we kind of still still see both of those forces of like the love of nature, the kind of wildness, and then the very sort of genteel like sort of thing. So <laughs> I, I feel both of those like forces at work in me too so mm-hmm. it's interesting I don't know <laughs> have any thoughts this is a bigger question but why that is the case with artists like Van Gogh as well and others or most of them are not appreciated hmm. and then they are <laughs> <laughs> some of it is timing I guess you know like people aren't always ready to <laughs> to sort of look at things in your way um, mm-hmm. and yeah, I don't know if any of the rest of you have ideas about that. Well, how many prophets are appreciated in their own time? <laughs> I think there's a, there's a bit there's of a, a correlation there, yeah. actually. Yeah. And I think the life story comes out mm-hmm. afterwards as well. Like that's right. 
with Van Gogh. It's such a moving story in her writings. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, it's a sad thing in some ways, mm -hmm. just financially for. Yeah. 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 Some some do find recognition, and she. I mean, she also was like pretty isolated again. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, she wasn't. <laughs> My dad and I watched a documentary about um, that was built, made in the '70s about Emily Carr, and they interviewed some members of the Victoria Sketching Club that were like current at the time, and a lot of them were just really didn't like Emily Carr still, and they were like, "It's just, it's just kind of weird," and like, mm -hmm. "We like paintings of flowers," <laughs> so you can see it's not really like the nice things for women to paint of, of that time, you know? It was yeah. very. There is, there is like a. A brooding, like they said, well, we wouldn't want that on our wall, you know, that kind of brooding, yes, and the, the, the um, yeah, maybe you wouldn't hang it over your bed, <laughs> I don't know, um, but she was really trying to convey something, some, something she felt had not been done in the West, and, well, maybe in Canada in general, but especially for here, she wanted to kind of give voice to this landscape in a way, and, um, yeah, so, so I guess if, someone has a really unique vision it sometimes takes time for that to be appreciated also if they seem very eccentric at the time <laughs> um, that probably doesn't help their case either you know which then go uh, did as well as car so. and it shows you that the value the culture gives you in the moment is not necessarily a testament of its real value or, or a value that will come in time um, and ultimately weighed in the kingdom of God uh, but it's wonderful to see that she had the perseverance in her art and also that she was able to be brought in by the group of seven even though they weren't ultimately the place where she needed to be but they're the ones who brought her back mm -hmm. into uh, painting mm -hmm. and in a way brought her back to Christ mm -hmm. uh, so they seem to play such a pivotal role um, but besides that it seems that she had great perseverance to continue to be an artist in spite of its economic hardships, her rejection as odd. It's quite a wonderful witness to, to people who want to be artists, who are artists, who should pursue it. That's not meaningless. Maybe that's why they named the art school in Vancouver after her. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it was, she's, she was very motivated and she really had this internal driving vision, I think, that, that kept her going. Um, but she did feel the rejection too, for sure. Um, yeah. Do you recommend her plea wet, or is that the mm. one you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, I haven't read all of her writing, I'm <laughs> still in the process of it. But uh, I mean, it just depends what you want. Like the plea one is focused on her, her encounters with First Nations people. so. Um, that and it's quite interesting but it spans like kind of her whole life in different periods so um then the book of small is, is yeah her childhood and um the house of all sorts is that period when she had ran the boarding house and um heart of a peacock i haven't read and i'm not sure what <laughs> what it's about actually um and i'm trying to think what the there's one more but I, hundreds of thousand mystery journals the, which i really loved reading um I, I think it's really a wonderful account of like creative process as well as her sort of spiritual journey um yeah so there's some parallels with flannery like with the animals mm -hmm. and the social isolation and mm -hmm. yeah and Sarah <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> i think the isolation in some ways helped her keep her unique vision too i would say like just even that she wasn't close to the group of seven i think she kind of had to do her own thing um, more, and there were people who didn't understand, so she she kind of kept a distinct style. I just I'd just like to show those these later paintings because I would never, you know, I would never guess that that was an image mm -hmm. because you only ever see the brooding ones mm -hmm. that, that are made. So it's yeah. almost like this part part of her life is not shown as much or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's something very powerful about those <laughs> those huge kind of in-your-face ones, and I, I think they're very beautiful too. But it's it's a different feeling for sure. Yeah. Um, well, we also stood very to me because she had this interaction with the native community and had felt that isolation herself. Is there w is there any aspect of her life that 
in a more modern term, you might talk about social justice, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, she she was not really an activist herself, I wouldn't say. <laughs> that wasn't really her, her focus. Like, she definitely, um, I think, had a connection with First Nations people, partly because she felt on the outside as well. Yeah. Um, and so, but she, you know, she's kind of considered a bit of a feminist icon, although she she pr probably wouldn't have thought of herself that that way or used that term, but um, just because she never got married and <laughs> she was, you know, very focused on her work and unconventional, but she was also quite conservative in certain ways too, like she really didn't have time for kind of like um, the loose sexuality of some of the artistic um, people of that of her time, so like she was very disapproving of the, like the divorce. She's like, well, she's like, it's not my business <laughs> with Lauren Harris, but she's like, but I feel like my connection is kind of really change and it's going to be over with these people so yeah so in certain ways she was unconventional other ways really conservative and she was always a strong monarchist too <laughs> she loved loved the, the king and the queen so. yeah. well you're welcome to stay and chat more if you want to but you can also go and um, have more snacks <laughs>